Today, uh, I want to continue my series on the Apostles' Creed. And remember, I started this uh, because um, we had a radio program on Redeemer session and we got some inquiries as to why the Apostles' Creed or any summary of the faith was important to confess for today. And uh, uh, also that, that there are statements in there that are not easy to understand. Well, I have finished the first paragraph in the Creed. If you want to take a quick look at it on page 845, we'll use it at the end in the hymnal. Uh, and I have preached one sermon on the second paragraph, which is about Jesus. Remember, it's a Trinitarian creed. The first is about the Father, the second is about the Son, and the third paragraph is about the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to jump ahead a little bit today. And uh, the reason that I want to jump ahead is because Thursday, what was that, the 18th, on the church calendar is Ascension Sunday. It's a time when Christians for centuries have remembered and read scripture pertaining to the Lord's ascent into heaven. And uh, there are not many sermons on the ascension. And I've tried to preach one every year about this time. So I'm going to skip down, if you will, to that phrase in the creed, which simply says, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so I want to look at that today. It's out of sequence, yes. But that he ascended in heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty is, uh, is a truth that the church, that believers rest upon because it is essential to the plan of salvation. Now, the Nicene Creed also has this as well. It, it's a little bit different, but not much. The Nicene Creed, which is a longer creed, not much longer than the Apostles, says, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, leaving out the word God and Almighty. Uh, simply, they were assumed. Otherwise, the two creeds are the same. Now, then on the Christian calendar, this is marked as a day to remember. Just as Easter is a day marked to remember. Just as the birth of Jesus is a day marked to remember. Just as next week we will have a Pentecost celebration and a baptism. And by the way, it's a very good music. To celebrate Pentecost. These are things to remember. These are the great events of salvation. The Christian dare not ever forget the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit. Important to remember these great events. For we live at a time and place in history when people eschew doctrine. It's not important. You will hear the old refrain, doctrine divides, but the Spirit unites, as if the same Spirit who unites us did not give us doctrine, the teaching of Scripture. 
We are blind without the scripture. We are blind without remembering these great truths. Back to the ascension. My text is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This is the passage, actually, that has to do with thanksgiving and prayer. But toward the end of the text, Paul introduces the ascension. I want you to hear the relevant text at the end. Though it has been read to you, I want to emphasize, underscore, that Jesus ends up this passage by talking about his ascension. That is, Paul talking about the ascension of Jesus. And let me read it again. God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, end of quote. Jesus' ascension then is introduced at a point where Paul has been discussing prayer and Christian hope as they relate to God's power. The ascension is the fulfillment, if you will, of an Old Testament passage, among others, that is found in Psalm 110, verse 1. The ascension is not just simply an afterthought of the resurrection. But if you turn to Psalm 110 and verse 1, you will read a very familiar verse in the Bible that every Jew, every believing Jew, kept in their hearts, if not in their phylacteries, and it's a, a summation of God's doings and his sovereignty. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When Jesus ascended on high, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. This is called the session of Jesus. The sitting at the right hand of power. Now, you're not to think in terms of spatial ideas. For God is an eternal spirit, not subject to space and time. But Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the place of power. And so whatever Paul says up to this point is not going to take place, is not possible to realize unless indeed... The risen Lord has ascended and is in a position to exercise that sovereign power to bring things about. Otherwise, things are just random, haphazard. Either things are by design or they are by chance. There's really no middle ground if you think about it. Either everything is a product of chance, as the secularist believes. It's happenstance. There is no end. We're just making it up as we go along, including meaning. Or there is indeed a sovereign hand that is guiding all things, a powerful hand who brings all things to a conclusion, including your life 
and my life. And so when we turn to Ephesians here in this wonderful passage, we see that God in his plan of salvation has fulfilled, let's say, for instance, in one place, Psalm 110, verse 1, and we see it several times in the New Testament. Do you realize how many times the ascension of Jesus is mentioned in the New Testament? Much more uh, space given to it than is ever preached about. And Jesus' life, in one sense, is being concluded now with this, his ascension. In the New Testament, Jesus' earthly life is really encompassed from his baptism, and this is Luke's design, this is the way he lays it out, from baptism to the ascension. That's his public ministry. After Jesus had been raised from the dead, for 40 days, for 40 days, he taught his disciples many things. And it wasn't just all teaching, it was fellowship. It was rejoicing, surely, over the resurrection. And then he led him out uh, to a little place on the hill there in Bethany, close to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and he ascended into heaven. Luke ends his book with that, and since Luke is the author of Acts as well, he begins it with Acts. So the ascension is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now let's look at the text. Let's look at the text a little closer in Ephesians. Paul is concerned about thanksgiving. He's giving thanks to God and about the way they were to live in the world until Jesus came again. And so he begins this way, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul says, I heard about you. Now he established a church there, but it's grown and he doesn't know a lot of the people. And he, he's, in his missionary travels, he's hearing and he's heard about their faith, and he's heard about their love and their continuance in it. And he says, though, I have never ceased uh, to pray for you. I pray for you every day. And this is what he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So I want to pause here for that phrase, that we may know him better. The bottom line in Christianity is knowing God. Now, this is not the bottom line in a lot of religions. For a number of years, I spent my time teaching other religions, Eastern religions, other religions that rose in the West. And while I don't have the best of command, I have a decent command and understanding those religions. And I do not find anywhere in any of these religions to the same degree except in Judaism a desire, a quest to know God. In Islam, God is quite remote. You never know where you stand. In Buddhism, there is no personal God. And only in some schools of Hinduism, and in that case, it's your own quest. 
And it never falls out along the lines that the New Testament. The New Testament is absolutely special in its presentation of the Lord. The New Testament is about God coming to know us and confronting us in our history and culture and place in our flesh. You really can't avoid Jesus. That's why we're to proclaim him so people can't. If he is who he says he is, we, we do people a favor by being faithful to the gospel. It's about knowing God. The question in the New Testament and for the human race is this. How can I know the infinite God when I am finite? Now think of that. Can the finite know the infinite? The question is, from the Christian perspective, no. How can something that is small and weak and beggarly, finite, ever know that which is surpassing glory, unless that glory comes to him or her? Your puny mind cannot discover God. Philosophers through the centuries have tried to figure out how much can we know of God simply through human reason. Thomas Aquinas says, well, you, can, you might get to know that there is one God, but you don't know much about that God, through reason if you're very smart. And you can reason well. You might come up with some roughly idea that God might even be something like a person. But remember the finite is absolutely limited. We are amazed every day just simply in created things as our telescopes delve deeper and deeper, seeing in deeper space, or our microscopes into the small things of life, the microcosm. We are absolutely amazed and astounded. We never suspected these things. Didn't enter into our imagination. How much less could we know that one who's uncreated? Moreover, we know that not only is the problem of finiteness, the problem is also one of sinfulness. We are egocentric. We focus on ourselves. I'm more interested in my affairs than yours. That's the problem, isn't it? I focus strongly on what I want in life. It's difficult to get out of myself and look at your needs. That's why Paul says, look not everyone on his own things, but on the things of others. There's something fundamentally wrong in the human race. We are flawed. We're flawed to that extent. There's a kind of darkness. How can you ever see and know God in the darkness? So you've got two problems. Your moral character, which is darkness, and the fact that you're finite. So what does God do? He comes to us. And he has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that you might know him more and more and more. He has ascended on high, but he is here with us. As John's prologue says, light has dawned upon the world in the person of Jesus Christ. God has come to us, lived among us. Now we come to know God through his spirit. And Paul is praying earnestly that these Christians would know God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is no longer with them in body. He is with them, though, in spirit. He has ascended on high. He is present. They can know him. And he says, now, through the spirit of wisdom, 
and of revelation. I pray that God will give you that. Isn't it a wonderful blessing to know God? Some of you will say to me sometimes, Pastor, I don't know how people get along without the Lord. Isn't it, isn't it a truth? How do you get along without the Lord? You have to make it up. You have to be whistling in the dark. I used to do that as a kid when I was walking through the city streets at night after my basketball game. I was in the sixth grade. I had to go play somewhere and I would be let out at my friend's house and I had to walk from his house to my house in city dark streets. Well, they had some street lights. I walked in the middle of the street, make sure that I could get a quick run. And I would make a lot of noise and whistle in the dark. Many people have done that. But that's about all you can do apart from God coming to you and knowing him. God reveals himself to you in Jesus Christ. In our darkness and finitude, God has made himself known. You see, apart from that, we're in a box. Think of a dark box. People who get deeply depressed talk about living in a dark box. When I was a kid, seventh or eighth grade, uh, we used to slip into the local grade school that I graduated from in the sixth grade. A bunch of us boys. And um, we would be the only ones in there because we broke in. And we would slip in and go into a certain hallway that led to the gym uh, from the hallway. It was an immediate hallway. And we could close the doors entirely black. And why did we slip in? We each had a boxing glove. And we would go into that dark room, six or seven of us, and we would flail at each other in the dark. Until the other one would get, somebody would get too hot for them and they would leave. And we would just bang on each other in the dark. You didn't know who you were banging on. Just flailing. You couldn't see your finger in front of you, your hand in front of you. Total darkness. I picture the human race apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ as flailing in the dark. Trying to figure it out. My friend, apart from Christ, your neighbor really doesn't have it all together as you think he does. Your colleague at work doesn't have it all together the way you think she does. There is a certain confidence and assurance that these early Christians had because they had come to know God in Christ. Now let's continue here. He says, he's praying for them. What a wonderful phrase this is. That the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know to what we've been called to. That's a curious phrase. I'll deal with it here. The heart's not a big deal. We believe and receive Christ in our heart. This is the ordinary word, cardia, for heart. And uh, the heart has affections and understanding. I, I know you with, uh, with all my heart. A mother may say to her child, if the child rebels and says, you know, you don't, you don't understand me. And she may say, I know you with all my heart. I understand you. It's, it's the seed of knowledge and the seed of knowing as well as the seed of affections. I love you with all my heart. 
you can't separate understanding and affections. They're together. We'll call them sentiments and opinions. They're mingled. And so Paul is praying here that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The heart here is the seat then of understanding and affection that we may know and understand what our hope is. Faith tells us what is present. You know, sometimes I'm asked the difference between faith and hope. Well, let me give you one little distinction that holds in every case. Faith is always about the present. It's a trust. It's a walk. It's resting upon something in the present. Hope is about the future. Paul not only says, may you know God through faith in the present in Jesus Christ. Now, may you also have your eye, the eyes of your heart be opened so that you understand the future or what the end of all things are. What is the end here? Well, he goes on to describe the glory of it. You say, well, I haven't gotten there yet, Pastor. I don't quite understand it. Well, let me say that in some sense, the end is always Christ. If you know him in the present, you know him that he is the end. Isn't that the way the book of Revelation puts it? He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. And so Christians, in some sense, know the end. Oh, we don't have any special knowledge about the future in one sense, but we know the future. As the little saying says, I don't know the future, but I know him who holds the future. So therefore, Paul says that you may be enlightened as to your hope. Christianity then is future-oriented. It's, it's this worldly-oriented too, make no mistakes, but it's future-oriented. You know, secularism is a strange philosophy. Secularism subscribes some things such as well, maybe the future will be better than the past. Or that you need constant change. You ever notice how this theme of constant change is always in the secular world? Change, 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 change. Change to what? That's the problem. There's no goal in secularism. There's absolutely no goal. It's just evolving, changing, changing. It, it's, it's more akin to turmoil and restlessness. Never being able to satisfy, be satisfied with anything. Always wanting more and more and more and always without paying a price or a cost. Christianity is future oriented. It is oriented toward a goal and that end is Christ Jesus. And we know that in him we will be able to ascribe that glory that is due God's name, that we will be fulfilled. Indeed, we have eternal life. This is yet to be revealed in us. But we are confident that the Lord is the end. And indeed, he is. Whatever Jesus' future is my future. Whatever the resurrection means in his return, that's mine. And we know that in this goal, they'll be in to the kinds of things that so beset the human race. 
and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But the whole phrase is the eyes of your heart. The heart has eyes? Well, yes. Heart here, the heart that you have of understanding and affection, supposed to have some eyes. We need light. Eyes receive light. They're a special organ. They're special. In order for any person to see, there are three things necessary. Something to be seen. You need the seer, eyes, and you need light to see by. You can have an object to be seen and the eyes to see it, but if there's no light, you can't see it. So you need eyes to be able to see that light which God has given. Eyes see light. And in this case, what are we talking about, these eyes? You know, it's, it's an interesting phrase. You don't find much of it spoken of in the Bible or anywhere else, but in Jewish literature, the eyes stood for The heart having a bad will, being darkened, if you can't see. When, when, when the apostle is speaking of eyes of your heart, he's really shifted now from your faith to your conduct. How do you behave? You have to have eyes to behave properly. Jesus says, if your eye be evil or darkened, it means you have a perverse will or a darkened will and you don't choose the right things. You may not even see what is good. In order to do the good, you must be able to behold it. In order to do the good, you must not only be able to behold the good, you must have a heart or a choice that wants to do the good. You know, that is our problem in many ways today, isn't it? Conduct. We are sinking our culture. I know that people decry the declinists who say, well, America's not what it used to be. Let me say, in my opinion, America's not what it used to be. There was at a time a general Christian consensus when we could see clearly in a better way what the good was. We are so confused morally in this country that we cannot possibly attain a good end. It's not possible. Consensus on every issue has almost been lost. We're confused about our sexuality. We're confused about our hates and loves. We're confused, yes, even about what the truth is. Just go to the average trial, like the Jonathan Edwards trial. It's not average there, though. Listen to the pieces and the, read some of the transcripts. It's not about truth. One lawyer told me, we don't seek the truth, we seek a settlement, whatever it may be. And so in a real sense, this has to do with conduct. You cannot reach the end unless you take the right steps to get there. That's how I know secularism will never attain anything. They don't know the end and they don't know the steps. They can't hear the music. But you do. So Paul is praying, oh, praying that we might have 
eyes, our heart have eyes that we might see to know what to do and to walk therein. Did you notice that second hymn? It's a wonderful hymn. It may be new to some of you, but it is a great hymn. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And he sets it all in the context of the ascension. And this is why. Because when Jesus ascended on high, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he rules as the king over all things pertaining to the church and everything. And that king rules in power. And he not only can command, he can give what he commands. He wants those Christians to know who are just a small group of people in Ephesus, even though the church has grown significantly. He wants them to know that the power of God is still with them. And they can live for the Lord in a world that is going the other direction. They can live for an end or a purpose in a world that has no purpose or no end. And it's because Jesus has ascended on high and he has given gifts to the church and he has given power to the church. He has given power to the Christian. And so Paul wraps this up in his epistles by saying God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. We're able to live in this world as believers in Christ and we're able to hope and have a good hope for the end. You hear me pray often about living in this world and having great hope for the next. Oh, my friend, Jesus Christ is that. He is that. I have no other comfort to offer those who lose loved ones than that Jesus is the resurrection of life. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he reigns on high and he will come again. But again, I think, what greater comfort can there be? For those who've lost a job, I, I, I help people do resumes. I help my kids. I help people in the church do whatever the best I can. But I so, don't have power to open some of these doors. I wish I could. But I do know him who does. And I pray for you that he might indeed empower you. Confusion. I pray that God will give you understanding as Paul did. And we pray for one another. This is what the ascension means. He who promised now reigns on high. And he gives us the power to live in this world, and to hope for the next. I hope you love the ascension. It's a great teaching, great doctrine. Prayer depends upon it. Every prayer that we pray is dependent upon a God who not only promises, but who fulfills. And he has ascended on high. That the Spirit might come and be with us next week. Amen.